Hello and welcome to the Feminist Law Podcast. I'm your co-host, Courtney Jones, a recent law graduate and incoming postgraduate student in law. And I'm your co-host, Clara Tokul, a recent law graduate and incoming trainee solicitor. We're both co-founders of the Feminist Law Project and passionate about the intersections of law and feminism. In today's episode, Clara continues her interview with Dr. Anna Nelson. So other than the article that you've written, um, which we're discussing for the purposes of today's podcast, this is actually the first I've personally heard of women being coerced to vaginal examinations during the COVID-19 pandemic specifically. Um, and as we've already previously discussed, the general narrative, at least from what I've seen, seems to focus more on the lack of support um, for childbearing women over the pandemic and giving birth without their partners, um, rather than um, unnecessary or um, additional vaginal examinations. So why do you think there is such little information available on the subject? Yeah, so I think that it's, that's a really good um, question. And I think that it's in part because of this kind of cultural narrative about sacrificial good motherhood, where you would do anything to ensure your baby that's, is healthy and that a healthy baby is all that matters to the exclusion of the kind of choices, values of, of the person um, giving birth. And I think that because of that, issues around choice in childbirth are seen as optional extras rather than kind of fundamental issues regarding human rights and bodily integrity. It's sort of seen as like, oh yes, they can, as long as they have a healthy baby, it's nice if they get what they want rather than they need to have a healthy baby and have the absolute right to say, you cannot violate my body bodily integrity in this way. But I think that tied into that is the fact that this is so pervasive that people don't know that they can and because kind of medical authority is is powerful we trust doctors we don't know about you know the normal person in the street doesn't necessarily know all the ins and outs of quite physiologically how birth works and how things happen so people don't necessarily know that you you're allowed to say no to vaginal examinations they might not know that actually you know there's sort of a monitoring device it's not it's not that you will not have a baby if you don't accept this vaginal examination it's just more a kind of monitoring device and um, to see how far labor labor is progressing so if people don't know we kind of the kind of stories that come through is this is people had this sort of sense like a sense of that felt that felt a bit icky and, and I feel somehow like I was maybe violated in some way but I can't put into words what it was or I can't quite grasp what I think this harm was so because there wasn't the kind of language and recognition around it it's hard to generate bodies of work because people can um kind of make those complaints and actually I think one of the I use positives like very loosely but positives of the whole circumstance around the pandemic was that the problem was magnified and therefore a spotlight kind of was shone on it and therefore people were more able to recognize oh wait that yeah yeah, yeah that happened to me that happened to me I understand why and um, I felt like that and I think there is a growing body of work and to the end, before the end of the question, I did also want to spotlight that there is some other really brilliant work happening um, in this area um, across like law, midwifery, philosophy and beyond. And I'm just going to kind of name check a few people whose work, if you're interested, I would definitely recommend checking out um, 
I will miss that names, but I just wanted to say Dr. Camilla Pickles, um, Rebecca Brion, she's a PhD student, and Stella Valermia, amongst lots of other people, are doing um, brilliant things. And I, as I was writing this article, um, Camilla Pickles and Jonathan Herring had just published a book entitled Women's Birthing Bodies, Unauthorised Intimate Examinations, Power and Vulnerability, which is a whole edited collection that looks at this. So there's sort of, it is, it has historically been overlooked, but I think that it's kind of, it's time is coming um, now. That's great to hear um, that, you know, it's, it's getting more of a more of a voice. Um, and thank you for sharing the names of other authors. Um, I'll definitely have a look um, at them afterwards. I will make sure to put their names in the show notes uh, for any listeners who might want to look into their work. Um, so as an overall kind of question about your article, when you're researching and writing it, um, what findings surprised you the most? Yeah, so I was thinking about this and I, I sort of think, what's quite sad about it all is that none of it really surprised me that much. Um, I think the fact that the kind of policies were able to get through <laughs> um, and have this impact without anybody saying, wait a minute, was a little bit surprising. But once it's put in the pandemic context, it's, yeah, a little bit depressingly um, uncertain unsurprising and I know there's been a huge amount of conversation about this um more broadly in the media now about scale of underfunding in maternity services but one thing that I think that I think has shocked me both in this paper and throughout my kind of broader work on um, childbirth and the law is just how many barriers are in place which prevent both women and birthing people from getting the care they deserve but also midwives from offering the level and standard of care that they want and that they feel it's their professional duty to um, offer. So just the kind of extent of the problem surprised me a bit. Yeah, I completely agree, especially given, you know, what we've discussed about there not being that much information ready, readily available just yet um, on the topic. Um, and going forward, how do you think that the law and policy can be amended to ensure that women do not undergo unnecessary vaginal examinations that they are coerced into? Um, and when I was I was actually thinking about this today, I thought obviously this applies to the topic of childbirth during the COVID-19 pandemic, so what we've been discussing. Um, but we've also seen in the news, um, this applies to a lot of other fields, for example, um, it's been highlighted in gymnastics teams, for example, in the US um, or other sports as well. This is obviously a widespread problem. Yeah, I don't feel comfortable talking about it in the US perspective because I think there is a whole lot um, of extra stuff happening there it's course, not limited to kind of <laughs> I think yeah. it's really important but I think there's kind of transphobia there's politics a lot of stuff yeah, happening it was there I like the magnitude of the issue but yeah absolutely um in in the context of the UK and I know I have a legal background but I'm not always so convinced about what the law can do or if the law can do that much because I sort of think lots of the issues that come up in that paper and come up in some some of the choice in childbirth and um, obstetric violence type conversations is that actually these are real deep set cultural or socio-cultural problems and narratives that underpin the issues regarding how we see women and birthing people, how important we 
recognize their bodily integrity to be and how much we value and fund um, our maternity, midwifery and birthing services. So I think that there is space for creating legal recognition for this harm, if only and um, Camilla Pickles has done work on this, but if only to recognize the severity of it, if we have appropriate criminalization or legal redress that says to people, we take this kind of harm seriously. Um, but in terms of stopping it happening, it is illegal that it happens. So the law obviously does not stop it happening. I think it's about changing some of these socio-cultural narratives and also in the policy context I think it's about trying to drive some recognition when policy is being made for um, maternity and birthing services that women pregnant women and birthing people are not starting from a neutral and level playing ground it's not that we've got women and birthing people and healthcare professionals and everyone is kind of equal the as social realities within which people are pregnant and birth and the hierarchical institution within which they give birth I mean they're starting on the back foot so if we really want to center the kind of voices and choices of pregnant people in maternity policy I think there needs to be this real recognition when making policy that there needs to be an active move to redress the balance of power and redress the empowerment that we give um, pregnant and birthing people. So I think that's something that maybe needs to be looked at across the NHS, but I think there's specific aspects of the kind of socio-cultural narratives around pregnant people that mean it's specifically um, important in the context of maternity care. Yeah, I totally agree. And along um, a similar, I suppose, um, thought process, uh, my next question is, what protective frameworks do you suggest we should implement in England? Um, to limit uh, women being coerced into unnecessary procedures, especially during pregnancy and childbirth, um, when women tend to be more vulnerable? Yeah. So I've got a couple of, couple of things, but I wanted to first say a note on the vulnerability issue. And this is potentially some quite badly thought out rambles because it's something I've been thinking a lot about recently. Um, but I think we need to be really careful when we talk about people being especially vulnerable um, during pregnancy and childbirth, in that people are. And obviously we need to look out for and protect um, people during pregnancy and childbirth. But I think we also need to recognise that we are all vulnerable in different ways as humans. And this ties into vulnerability theory, which I recognise that I am not an expert on and need to do a whole lot of reading on. Um, and I think it's absolutely correct to recognise, or how I see it, is that pregnant people are often rendered kind of situationally vulnerable. They're vulnerable because of the, um, their pregnancies, their reliance on the healthcare systems around them during pregnancy, also their physical inability to move at some points during labour, but not that something mentally about pregnant women or birthing people is specifically vulnerable. And I think that kind of distinction, which might seem really pedantic, is quite important because there has been this tendency to view pregnant women as irrational and vulnerable people who need to be looked after. And, and that lets kind of paternalistic narratives creep back in. So I think we're right to recognize that they're vulnerable. 
think we need to be really careful how we use that. Um, as I say, something I've started to think about, something I've not always dealt with very well in my own work, but I just thought I would throw it out there. Um, but with that in mind, in terms of protective frameworks, I'm going to say two things, which might sound like they're not necessarily protective frameworks, but I really think they are. One is funding maternity care properly, because if everyone has more time, I think we've probably uh, probably said enough about why I think time and funding would help a lot of these issues. And the other is um, education of both midwives um, and all birth staff and birthing people. So to know what their rights are, to know they can say no. And on the flip side for maternity staff, to know that they will be legally protected if they respect people's choices um, and how they can go about providing care they feel comfortable with while also respecting that. So I think that funding and education are perhaps not the most mainstream of protective frameworks, but I think that they are the really important things. No, they're definitely important. Um, so thank you for putting those forward as suggestions. Um, and if any of our listeners are worried about vaginal examinations and potentially being misled into undergoing one, um, what would you advise them to do? Yeah, I think it might seem really obvious but the first and foremost what I would say to anyone with worries is that you have a right to say no you have a right to ask for more information about why the vaginal examination being formed or just to say not right now and if you say no if you say why if you say oh maybe later you're not being a pain you're not declining consent for the rest of the birth you're not withdrawing your consent to the rest of care and um, so I think that's one thing that's quite just helpful to know that it's okay to do that. Um, and I also need to decline a, to declare a slight interest here as I do do some work delivering training um, for birthrights. But I do think that the birthrights website is a really uh, handy place to go. They sort of have fact sheets about people's rights and um, they have uh, advice like you, an information service as well, email service. So if you are worried, I think that's an accessible place to go. But as I say, slight interest in it in saying that. <laughs> Thank you. We'll make sure to put that um, in the show notes as well. And yeah, the only reason I ask this question is I think it's also, obviously when we talk about it, not in this situation, it's quite easy to you know say, actually, how about you just say stop or no, or yeah. let me actually check if that's even necessary. Um, but I know, you know from experience and talking to other people that actually sometimes you're with a doctor and you don't actually think to say no. And then you go through a procedure and then you speak to your family and your friends and they go, hold on, that's weird. And it's only with hindsight that you go, oh yeah, that was really not necessary. Um, and I think this this whole conversation, I found it fascinating. So I went through, not with, you know, I'm not going to go into details, it's not a vaginal examination, but a similar situation where I did know I could say no. Yeah. And actually with hindsight, you go, oh, I could have, but you didn't know that at the time. And you feel like, you know, the doctors with you, they've allocated them, you know, they've allocated you time yeah. and you just have to go through with it because that's surely the only way. And the doctor knows best. I've spoken to lots of kind of brilliant midwives who say, well, in my practice, I, I always say, I'm going to, you know that you have a right to say no, you have a right to decline this. I won't stop, particularly with vulnerable people, people for whom English isn't their first language. People um, who might not have had the educational opportunities that other people have to have midwives and to know there are midwives out there who really center their practice on saying, I am offering you this, but you have the right to decline, um, I think is a really important thing. So that would be my tip on the flip side 
for healthcare professionals to really make sure you explain to people that you're offering them something rather than imposing it upon them. I completely agree. And that makes a much safer space in a way and, you know, a, a place where you feel like you can say no or stop um, or ask questions. So thank you for um, highlighting that. Um, and finally, if our listeners would like to learn more about vaginal examinations and childbirth, as well as your wider research, where could they do so, please? Yeah. So for more information about, information about vaginal examinations, I really recommend people check out the edited collection by Pickles and Herring um, that I recommended earlier. And I can send you some information about that if you want to put it in the podcast notes and um, for a less legal approach uh Rochelle Chadwick has written really beautifully about birth from a kind of more sociological perspective and there are some brilliant midwifery researchers who are doing work on kind of quote-unquote out of guidelines care and people like Claire Feely and Anna Madeley um, I would also really recommend that people read the Birthrights Report into Racial Injustice in Maternity Services and check out the really brilliant work being done by the folks at Five Times More. And because what really comes through strongly when you're researching this childbirth stuff is that systemic racism is such a central issue in all conversations about childbirth and the way people are treated. And there's also a really brilliant paper that I just love um, by Radante van der Waal and Kaveri Myra, Anna Horn and Rochelle Chadwick, so the four of them, um, called Obstetric Violence and Intersectional Refraction Through Abolition Feminism. And it's really cool. It kind of looks at it in quite a kind of big conceptual way, but I think that people might find it an incredibly um, interesting read. In terms of my work, which is less interesting than all of that, but I am clinging on to t Twitter X, clinging on to the bird site um, while it's still going. I find it such an important resource for building community when I did my PhD during the pandemic that I can't quite let it go. Um, I will have a chapter coming out soon in an edited collection, I think in the next year-ish, um, in which I look at maternity policy during COVID-19 and what lessons we can take from this to help us recenter consent um, of birthing people in maternity service policy making. So if you find this interesting, follow me on Twitter or LinkedIn and I will eventually uh, post about that. And um, yeah, so that's, that's where I would say, and that's some recommendations I have. Thank you for sharing all those resources and thank you again so much for coming on our podcast today. I found this conversation really fascinating um, and I'm really looking forward to all our listeners hearing it too. Um, so thank you very much. Thank you. It was really lovely to chat to you. In today's Feminist News Roundup, Hockey Canada is currently not releasing the findings of its report on sanctions against players who were accused of being involved in a sexual assault in 2018 in Ontario. Also in today's news roundup, Russell Brand is facing two more allegations of sexual assault. The new accusers came forward after an investigation was launched into his behavior by the BBC. In the UK, a new sentencing bill has been put forward, which would see those convicted of rape and, quote, other serious sexual offenses, end quote, imprisoned for the entirety of their custodial order. Meanwhile, in Canada, a bilateral agreement has been reached between the federal government and the province of Ontario, which will see $160 million invested in addressing gender-based violence. Finally, a settlement offer has been reached between Sean Combs and singer Cassie after she accused him of rape and physical abuse. If you have any suggestions for this podcast, let us know directly via email at contact at feministlaw.org. Please also visit our website at feministlaw.org 
and follow us on Instagram and LinkedIn to keep up to date with our latest articles, podcasts, newsletters, and exciting news. The music for this podcast was sourced from pixabay.com. Thanks for listening.